Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I feel like going somewhere different today. Where are we going today? Well, today, Pete, we're moving forward in time, or back in time from where we are today, but the Suvla... I'm getting confused. The Suvla Bay landings of August 1915. Oh, isn't Suvla Bay a wonderful... Just a a wonderful place. Sad if you have to fight and die there, but a wonderful place to visit, to to explore, to to see the battlefields and to think about what went wrong, because bloody everything went wrong, but not for the Turks. And a very different battlefield to, for example, Anzac. Very different. Very different. Yeah. Uh, Great. Great. Well, cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to uh, another great edition of Pete and Gary's Military History. Now this week, Pete... Hello, hello, hello. We are going to be talking about the uh, August offensives in Suvla, 1915. The first day, 6th, 7th of August. Yeah, last week's podcast we talked about uh, the the uh, Anzac operations of the 6th of August. This week we're, we're moving to the north, I think, to talk about Suvla uh, and uh, and the battles that were going on there. Not, not really connected, but uh, uh, you can explain for us. I can. And, Tell uh, us the history, Pete. And remember, we did one last year on the, the British diversion at, at Hellas. I can't remember yesterday. No, that's true, year. yeah. Now, uh, so where are we? Well, uh, 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 most of the fighting had been taking place at Hellas uh, uh, in, uh, in May and June. Uh, they've been battering away. So the Anzac had just been held. A very brave defence, but it, it wasn't. Uh, there was no offensive activity really there. Now, the... Um, after the third battle of Crithia, it, it, they realised there was a stalemate at Hellas. <laughs> they still carried on attacking for a, a quite a bit after that. But uh, back in London, they, they they had a meeting of the Dardanelles Committee, which is like the War Cabinet, it was called, uh, in June, uh, 7th and 17th of June. And there was a huge reinforcement uh, sent. Now, can you remember which divisions they sent, Gary? Can you? Can you? Well, I'm sure they were all hardened uh experienced vet- veterans Pete or would it be uh, the 10th 11th and 13th divisions which were all new army 
divisions. Which is the, their first, this is going to be their first time in battle. A lot of people think they went into battle for the first time uh, at, at Luce, uh, but that's not the case. They, 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 it was uh, at Gallipoli. And in addition, there was the 53rd and 54th divisions, which were territorial army formations. And not first line territorial. They'd gone out before. This is second line divisions, really. Yeah, that's, that all sounds as if it was just all thrown together. Bit haphazard, would you have said? I would have said that, but that's a long word. <laughs> yeah, we can stick to short ones. Um, now, so, so what do you think? What, what do you think informed their choice, or was there no informed choice? Well, I, I, they depended almost exclusively on the availability of the troops and and the question of transport capacity than on any real assessment of the overall strategic situation. And so they weren't thinking about the Western Front. Oh, they definitely weren't thinking about the needs of the Western Front. Uh, did they consider whether these divisions were ready for war? Because that's what comes to to most people's mind. What new army divisions, second line territorial divisions, were they ready for it? No, I mean the training was woefully inadequate. Uh, the men were arguably still civilians in uniform rather than soldiers. Their regimental officers were all either older men, recalled from retirement to the colours, or, uh, as you described them, callow, young, inexperienced officers. <laughs> right. I'm not, I'm not quite sure <laughs> that, what the noise was, but yeah. Uh, that was Fred. Fred, stop licking yourself. Um, now, now uh, so, so, uh, so, so they've got all these new divisions. Now... Um, the trouble is, where to put the stalemate at, uh, at uh, I mean, Hellas is almost hopeless, but Anzac, there's not much room. And then we discussed last week, Birdwood, Lieutenant General Sir William Birdwood, commanding the Anzac Corps, he planned a, a night attack bursting out to overwhelm the Turks on Hill Q and Chinook Bear before, you know, swooping down to take... To to, uh, to the neck and uh, blah, blah, blah. We covered all that in last week's podcast, didn't we? Uh, I remember how thrilling you found it at the time. I did. And I, I, at this point, Pete, I, I just think I should say that the panting that uh, people can hear is actually Fred. Yes. <laughs> Fred, it's not hot. I've no idea why he's panting. <laughs> there you go, listeners. <laughs> that was Fred. That was Fred. In, uh, now, uh, so what was so the, so? Where were they going to put these divisions? Well, they had, uh, Hamilton and GHQ. That uh, they began to reconsider the possibility of landings at Suvla Bay. Um, there's no space at Anzac, so they're going to they're, they're considering Suvla. Now, it had been considered before. Now, why hadn't they used? Why hadn't they landed down the 25th of April? It's got lovely beaches. Well, if I've you, seen your besport yourself on those beaches. <laughs> well, if you consider what the uh, what the ultimate objectives were, Killed by here, it's too far away, pure yes. and simply. Yeah. Now, uh, the Royal Navy is brought into the planning process uh, to, uh, to, to get a simultaneous landing alongside the ANZAC breakout operations. They're two separate operations. Um, what does the Royal Navy offer? Because there's something new. What are, and the Royal Navy are innovative uh, by nature. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they offer armoured motor lighters, uh, which were ordered back in February 1915. That, that uh, Fisher, it was he who uh, he'd intended them for use in the Baltic, which is a completely insane scheme that they had. Uh, but uh, but uh, what were they? Give, give us an idea what these these uh, armoured lighters are. Well, they're they're sort of shallow draft craft, and it could carry about 500 soldiers. Now they did represent a great advance from the towed strings, towed 
motorists, strings of rowing boats that were used on the 25th of April. They and, certainly and, do, don't and they? And again, we've spoken about them and, and uh, their limitations. And they they were colloquially known as uh, as beetles because they had like these two prongs at the, the front. haircut? No, they had two prong, <laughs> prongs at the front, which uh, we used for, for lowering the front of the boat down for, for a quick, uh, quick exit. Uh, and it, so and they're it, like assault landing craft. Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, actually, that's a very good description, and and that's what they would be called uh, in the Second War. Now the Navy did something else as well uh, because they brought into planning, so they they provide advice for the Army. Uh, now, what is this advice? Well, they they try, I think, as best as they can, to survey the the suitability of the beaches for landing. Now they suspected there would be um, shoaling waters inside Suvla Bay. Inside the bay. Now yeah. we'll put a map up. You'll see that the bay is very well defined with two sort of promontories. Prom- now the Army. Uh, recognizing, oh, they know far more. Well, recognising that this is sound, practical advice, they choose to ignore it completely. Absolutely. There won't be any shoals there, they said. No. And now, uh, the, 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 the Hamilton is going to form his new division, so they're going to land at Suver into a new corps. This is going to be called Ninth Corps, Gary, or 1X. I thought it was the X Corps. <laughs> and there was a lot of debate about who should command it. And the first suggestion coming from Kitchener, was that uh, the commander of the 10th Division, that's already on its way to, to, to the to the peninsula, um, uh, uh, should, uh, and commanded by Lieutenant General Sir Brian Mahon. Now, there's a, or Mahon, uh, the, the, there's a proper way of pronouncing that, which I'm not quite uh, up with. Now, why is a Lieutenant General commanding a division? That's a, 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 that's a Major General's appointment. But the point was... That's a, that seems to be a solution. He is a lieutenant general. That's the the, the level for corps command. He's and already he's, on his way there as well. He, and so he, he he puts him forward. Now something goes wrong. What goes wrong? And well, whose fault is it? Well, it's Hamilton. Hamilton doesn't rate Marn highly enough for a corps, believing he's reached his peak as a divisional commander. Well, that may or may not be true. But what does he ask for then? Well... <laughs> Is it the moon? Well, practically, because he boldly asked for either Lieutenant General Sir Julian Bing or Lieutenant General Sir Henry Rawlinson. Hang on a minute. What are they doing? Oh, they're just on their holidays on the Western well, Front. Well, both of them are, are attracting much admiration for their performance on the Western Front. And, you know, Kitchener naturally rejects it. Right. Uh, now... The trouble is, Kitchener also refuses to remove Mahan, Mahan, sorry, I think you're right with Mahan, from his divisional command of 10th Division. Uh, why, why should he be sacked just so that they can bring in a junior officer? So now you've got to add somebody senior to him in command. Oh, dear. Well, well, that's probably a big choice because we're not fighting a major world war, are we? No. Well, you're not going to take anybody from the Western Front. So, so, so where does this lead, Pete? I mean, it's basic intransigence between them. Uh, uh, the, the pair of them, but it's Hamilton's fault, in my view. And the only one left, well, there's two left, but one of them really is old and fat. I'm not saying. Why anything. was there a pregnant pause <laughs> then? Well, pregnant's word. Anyway, the, the the one they choose, and the only choice left is Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Stopford. It's not the ideal method of choosing someone, is it really? It really isn't. Uh, This is for a complex operation of war and it needs great leadership qualities. They need proven military command skills and they need a a sort of steely determination. Now, what was uh, what was Stopford's background? Well, what they got was a 61-year-old man who was... Oh, it's old, isn't it? That's, 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 that's older than you, Gary. It is older than me. And uh, at the time, it was considered 
really old, frankly. And uh, he was in semi-retirement as the Lieutenant of the Tower of London. Oh, don't we know somebody? We do know somebody doing something similar. Now, he's a career soldier, but his career had been of the sort that had not featured... He was a staff officer. Yeah, it's not It's not featured commander troops in action. Hang on, we wanted command skills. We do want command skills, but what we're getting is, is somebody with expertise, largely in the field of staff work, which is valuable. You've made that point on a number it's of occasions. It's not the skill set they wanted, though, is it? It's not. Now, no, Marne would have been better. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, whatever his limitations, Marn isn't a standout general, is he? he, he but it, but he, he's he's sound enough. And later on, he does command in uh, Salonica. So uh, anyway, uh, the GHQ staff of uh, the Middle East expedition, the uh, expedition, <laughs> were they French? <laughs> the Middle East. Just uh, move on. The GHQ staff they oh, produced the MEF planes. <laughs> They produce the Suvla plans, uh, and uh, and it's going to coincide with the Anzac offensive on the night of the sixth of August, sixth seventh of August. So the original concept is for uh, what would you say it was? Using well, your extensive knowledge, you just mentioned French, so it's a coup de main. All that, it's whereby just, that's the, almost sexual when you say French. Yeah, it's, it, it basically the covering forces of the eleventh division would land on the on the night of the sixth of August. On the beaches to the south of uh, Nibrunusi Point. That's the the southern one of the two promontories that form Suvla Bay. Yeah. Now, the, the task was to overwhelm the Turkish outposts, which are identified on the Lalababa Hills and Hill 10. No idea where that is. Before moving swiftly inland to seize the two ranges of Karich Tepe and Teki Tepe. And they dominate the whole of the Suvla Bay area. One's at the back and one's on the left-hand side. The right's a load of foothills leading up to Anzac. That, that, that's, uh, you'll see this on the map. Uh, now, uh, there's a complication uh, that, that's been... In fact, we briefly mentioned it, but Birdwood's plan. They were considered to be defence works and artillery positions. Positions They're suspected from aerial photographs on the southern slopes of Chocolate Hill and W Hills. They're, they're the foothills... Uh, below the Tekitepe range. And um, Birdwood wanted this taken out because they're a threat to his troops as they swoop out on the night march. Uh, and, and, and they're a threat. And he wants them eliminated by Stopford's Ninth Corps. So they decide to attack them. They're on the southern face, if you can see it. So they're going to attack them from the northern face because they're, then they'll be coming at them from behind, so to speak. Um, and uh, the, 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 the idea was they'd be attacked before dawn on the 7th, of August. Now, think about what time of year it is. Before dawn means we're talking very early. It's sunny times. Yes, yes. To use a technical term. Probably three o'clock in the morning, latest. Three-ish, three yeah. So, uh, one thing's certain. The, 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 the crucial thing was the high ground, the Kirish Tepe and the Teke Tepe, have to be seized as soon as possible. Uh, thus allowing, and that lets the 10th Division, the 2nd Division of 9th Corps to land, to, to move inside as a formed body of men, uh, to take the, any remaining objectives, and if necessary or possible, to help the Anzac Corps advance to the Surrey Bear Range. But this is a, very much a secondary objective. Now, everything then goes wrong. Uh, that, 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 so let's sum up. That's The main intent is to establish a supply base to act as a solid rock-solid base for any future push uh, across the peninsula after the success of the Anzac breakout. It's a secondary 
operation. Now, the plans are communicated to Stopford. They're not his plans, are they? And Stopford has a rather formidable chief of staff. Tell me a, a little bit about him. Just, just, just give me... A, what, what's the two letters that sum up this man? Well, he's uh, Brigadier General Hamilton Reed. VC. VC. And he's fresh from service on the Western Front. So we've got Stopford, who's got uh, very little command or battle experience, and who has been commanding in the Tower of London. And his chief of staff is a fire-eating VC who's just had practical experience on the Western Front. Yeah. And now, what do you think that means? Well, what it meant was Stopford initially, he was favourable uh, towards uh, the, the plans, but it was soon eroded by the pessimistic Council of Reed. Now, Yes, it was pessimistic, but he considered... What does he say? What well, does he Reed say? That, what does he say? He considered that attacks on prepared positions were impossible without proper artillery support. Now, where do you think he might have learnt that? Ooh, on the Western Front. And through bitter experience. So, what, what we're trying to say is, it's not a question of whether he's right or wrong, is it? It's whether his warnings are appropriate to the situation. Um, so what what questions are we asking? What do we really want well, to know? Well, the first question is, were they really facing formidable trench works? Or are they just sketched out trenches that have been seen from the air and there's not much there? Now, does that mean, therefore, was speed far more important to catch the Turks before they could reinforce the sector? So you either go slowly and surely to take these things, but you're then slow, or you go fast and try and get the crucial high ground before the Turks can get there. Ooh. Now, while you're asking all these questions... I am asking questions. Doubts have multiplied at Ninth Corps headquarters and a series of changes were introduced into the original GHQ plans. Right, well, firstly, and this is a stroke of genius, they decide to land a brigade inside Suvla Bay to reduce the distance and time that would be taken marching around the northern boundary of the Salt Lake. We've not mentioned that before, but behind the the the, uh, the inside the bay is a Salt Lake. Um, uh, now this is a bit unfortunate. Why is that unfortunate? Well, what did the Navy warn about? Oh yeah, shoaling waters. They warned about it, didn't they? And now, what what else is there? Just just uh, uh, the reason that, in a sense, we haven't mentioned up to now. Why isn't the Salt Lake a big factor? Well, because it was completely dry at the time. It had dried out during the long hot summer of 1915. Has the dog introduced himself to you again, Pete? You're holding your nose and laughing. God Almighty! <laughs> Shall I carry on? What one of our friends said. <laughs> Is Fred the Farty Dog all right? No, he's not all right. What are you grinning at, dog? He's grinning at me. How come you can't smell it? I'm far away. Secondly, the capture of Chocolate Hills and W Hills was now considered problematic without how it's a support. So it could no longer be possible until after dawn. Hang on, after dawn. The whole point was before dawn. Yeah. Now, Now they're changing it and they're saying it will now be after dawn. I get the sense that, that, that Stopford's changes are, are removing purpose, urgency. What do you think? Yeah, I think now the reference to the all-consuming urgency 11th Division rapidly seizing the Kirich Tepe and Teki Tepe ranges, it's been expunged. Oh. And the 10th Division was no longer charged with any particular responsibility to push out and assist the attacks from Anzac. Now, this is diluted, 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 diluted. And it carries on with Stopford's subordinates. And this is, you, you've been in management, you know, if you're not, if you don't direct subordinates, then they they will follow your lead in the sense of if you're being lacking urgency, they'll 
even more lack urgency, won't they? It, it, it passes down. So what happens? Uh, one of the, the most important of those subordinates is who? 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 Well, Major General Frederick Hammersley is in command of the 11th Division and, and he was hamstrung by his fears and his orders stating the capture of W Hill was only to be attempted if possible. That's, a, it, that's a clear abrogation of responsibility. Absolutely. Now, uh, there's one thing that I, I haven't put in the notes because I thought I'd surprise you. What do you think marks out uh, uh, General Major? I've told you several times in Gallipoli, but you won't have remembered. What, what marks Hammersley out from his peers as, as a general? Uh, is, I think it's he's it's, had some health issues. Health issues, as he'd been in a loony bin. I was trying to be polite, <laughs> Pete, but yes, he'd, he'd had some uh, health issues, hadn't he? Yeah, the poor sodded. Uh, so, I mean, he, is that a good sign that you're going to be able to withstand fantastic pressure? I'm not sure it is. Anyway, 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 anyway. Um, so, so what? how would you sum up the whole process of command and control within Ninth uh, Corps? Well, if I could use just one word, Pete, it would be disaster. So the intent of the landings has been submerged by sort of conditional, well, just stupidities that left no one responsible for the attainment of the real objectives that had been defined by Hamilton. But I want to point out, Hamilton and his staff, they hadn't done it either. We said this about Napoleon controlling his subordinates at Waterloo. It's not, I mean, he, he bore some responsibility too. And here we have the same thing. He didn't control his subordinates. Well, in fact, Stockford subsequently claims that he never even had a one-minute conversation with Hamilton prior to the Siebler landing. Do you think this is good management skills? Absolutely not. You have to brief people. You have to look them in the eye and make sure they understand what you're talking about. Now, the result of all this, I'll, I'll sum up quickly, and you'll have to get your map out here. The 11th Division would land as follows. The 34th Brigade would land at A Beach on the northern side of the Suvla Bay. They'd capture Hill 10, which is just inland, and then send a battalion to secure the entire length of the Kirich Tepe Ridge. That's the one running along the, nor- the whole northern side of Suvla Plain. Uh, now, the 32nd Brigade, they'd land on, on B Beach, uh, B, uh, B, B and C Beaches, uh, and they'd first capture the Lalababa Hills, just north of the beach, then move further north, join with the rest of 34th Brigade, march all the way round the dry Salt Lake, so this is all insanity, to attack Chocolate Hill from the rear. Yeah, always attack from the rear, if possible. Uh, they take in the largely imaginary Turkish defences from the rear. So uh, that's the point. Now, the 3rd Brigade... 33rd. No, no, what I mean, the 3rd Brigade of the... Sorry, uh, uh, that, that, I, I do apologise unreservedly for leading you to correct me. The 3rd Brigade of the division, the 33rd Brigade... Oh, God. <laughs> would, would land to cover the right flank. Uh, they'd basically land and then swing round facing Anzac, providing a, a covering the whole thing. And they'd also provide a divisional reserve as required. Now, one thing: what what, what do you notice? Compare and contrast Anzac and Hellas. What right. do you notice about Suvla? 
well, it's open spaces. Anzac's tight. They're very closely together. They've got a bite onto the peninsula. Subla, it's wide open. And and actually, it's only weakly defended, despite Stopford's fears. Now, more, more to the point, bloody Reed's fears. Um, Hamilton Reed. Now, uh, Hamilton Reed. Uh, I th- yes, thank you. Now, um, anyway, Reed VC. Uh, so, so what? The, now, let's. You, there's always two sides in a battle, isn't there? Uh, and 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 At who, least. Yes, you're probably thinking that horrendous battle when the Bane clans <laughs> fought it out. Um, with the, 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 so tell me, what what do the, does the Turkish commandant do now? He's got an unimaginative parents, hasn't he? Well, he's he's Major Wilhelm Wilma. Stupid German. No, his plans are really simple. He, he's just with just two battalions of uh, Bursa Gendarmerie and a single regular battalion. He didn't have sufficient men or resources to prepare a major fortification. No, no continuous trench lines. No continuous and if you trench look, lines. if you were there, you'd see you'd need divisions to, to do it. That you, it's huge, the so, whole area. So if, what he does is he, he selects certain key points for for defence of the coastal hills of Lalababa, Hill Ten, and uh, Karakol Dar. Karakol Dar, yeah. I, you can say that any way you like. Uh, oh, in that case, I'll say Karakol Dar. Brilliant. Thanks. And uh, th- so th- this is a tripwire thing. This is a usual German defence thing that we had uh, on the 25th of April. They're going to trip you up, hold you as long as possible while they sort out what's happening and move to, 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 the, to, 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 uh, to move and move to shore up the points most in need. Where are the main lines of defence? Again, they're not lines so much as, as outposts. But... No, but the forces are dug in as best as possible on Chocolate Hill. Green Hill, W Hill, and further back along Kirich Tepe. Right. Um, But that doesn't sound... So that's only three battalions. So that's not going to stop a a core, is it? No, but he was expecting that the uh, Turkish reserves from the Bulea sector would be marching to the rescue. And the Bulea sector is to the north, and that's the narrow bit where the peninsula is almost... It's actually the narrowest part, isn't it? Where we go across and we stop and look at that fort. Um, uh, now, sorry, that's when we're on a battlefield too. I do apologise, listeners. We do chat to each other occasionally. Uh, now, so uh, on the 6th of August, the 11th Division, that's the landing division, they leave Imbros. We've been there as well, Gary. We have. It's an islandy place. It is an island. It's called Gotchada now, I think. At 1945, in the early evening of 6th of August, they're in 10 destroyers and 10 of the Beatles, the K-Lighters, or, or whatever you want to call them. Now, well, you're going to be a young lad. It's always good to see you being a young lad, fresh-faced and innocent. You're going to be midshipman Eric Bush from HMS Bacante. The seven destroyers slipped their toes which was the signal for all motor lighters to go full speed ahead for the beach, with picket boats following. The running took less than ten minutes, but how different from Anzac. The landing was a complete surprise. There was no opposition and not a single casualty. A few rockets were fired, and one or two rifle shots rang out in the darkness, but that was all. Our motor lighter grounded rather far out, making it necessary for the men to wade in about three feet of water. They made a poor showing. No dash and a certain amount of talking. Indeed, a handful who obviously had had the wind up looked as if they were afraid to land. Petty Officer Main sang out and told them to get a move on. They went ashore after that. Now, so the landing, the 32nd and 33rd Brigade... Which was the third. It's the third brigade of the... Where they were landing on the, the, this long sandy... You remember that beach? It comes... Uh, so it stretches, basically, from Nimbrinette... Nibrinetti Point, right the way round 
to uh, to Anzac in a sense. Uh, it's a huge beach, the North Beach of Anzac. It's lovely, is it? Lovely sandy beaches. No opposition. The battalion sort them out, and uh, the 33rd Brigade move off to dig it, uh, a system of flanking defensives, while the, uh, the the members of the 32nd Brigade move forward. In particular, the Sixth Yorkshires move to attack the Turkish positions on Little Lalababa. They've got they're very imaginative names. Mm. Little Lalababa, Lalababa, and to clear the Nibraneski point. Uh, now, there's now, a that, po- what, what is this? This is a very important part in the history of the British Army, in my view. This would be the first attack made by a unit of Kitchener's new army, and they were very raw troops. Now, following up behind the Six Yorkshires in the second wave was Second Lieutenant Edmund Priestman, who was a former Boy Scoutmaster. Now, he couldn't help but be nervous as they advanced up Lalababa, and you're going to be Second Lieutenant Edmund Priestman, Sixth Yorks and Lancasters. Aye, we're nearing the introduction we've all had in our minds so long, the introduction to war as it is, as we push on through sweet, sickly-smelling scrub. Now, the darkness in front takes the form of a peaked hill and we and we meet the first slopes of its flank. And then, to our straining ears, there comes a voice from the blackness on our right. Almost inaudible at first, swells up to a shrill, wordless whine, quavers for a moment and then dies again into silence. Then again, This time it halts and inflects as though trying to frame some word, then almost as though it would sing a few quivering notes. It sinks down the scale into the night and the shadows again. (laughs) Sends a shiver down your spine, doesn't it, Gary? It does. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, although the Yorkshire get a fair number of casualties, they, they do capture both Lullabubs and the, uh, and the operations on track at the moment. And soon the first artillery batteries are coming short. This is very important to, uh, to uh, the command of uh, 9th Corps. And you're going to be Bombardier George Dale of A Battery, 59th Brigade Royal Field Artillery. And that, he's a character, and I, I like this chap. In brilliant sun, the tugs bore squelches into sand, and we jumped ashore with only wet feet. Was he from the south or to <laughs> And stare about. To the right, a sobering picture. Khaki forms with blood-stained bandages lie in rows on the beach, and bearers are coming over the dunes with another burden. A large red cross flag is being hoisted. On a sand dune 50 yards inland, a group of staff officers study a map and point. Now all becomes orders and bustle. Drivers are getting the horses ashore, ankle deep on the fine sand. We gunners know we've got a real job on our hands, getting guns and limbers with narrow iron-shod wheels up that steep beach of powdery sand. And the CO is calling for speed. Now for one of those brief, foolish incidents which somehow stick in the mind. Bobadier Bodkins, who never loses a chance to show himself, bustles up to me. Here, hold my rifle while I go in the water to help. What? A mere bombardier too? I start to redden and swell like a turkey cock. Hold your own, blooming something rifle, I shout. I'm coming in too. We exchange belfield stares, then lay our rifles above the beach and wade in together. One must stand on one's dignity sometimes. With horses pulling, gunners straining on drag ropes, the first gun is on the move. When inland, someone slams a big door. Bang! Comes a queer whining note, increasing to a harsh shriek as our first round of shrapnel bursts out to sea with a vicious clang. Somebody's hitting a lighter. It's Dan Gray. Well, well, first casualty, the sanitary orderly. Shells whine over at irregular intervals. Many falling short or over, but we know they'll have the range soon. Well, they, they go off and set up their gun positions. Uh, you know, they're under fire now, but it's going well. Um, how's it going with the landing of the 34th Brigade on A Beach, actually inside the Tuvalu? I presume the Navy didn't know what they were talking about. I'm sure the Army was correct. Is that right? No, it's a complete disaster. In fact, everything that could go wrong did go wrong for the uh, Hapless Brigade. I mean, one of the lighters, K3, had aboard a company of the 11th Manchesters, a further company of 9th Lancashire's and the two headquarters companies. The K3 cast off from the Bulldog about a mile from shore, but as the destroyers had anchored some thousand yards to the south of their intended positions in oh, the north is of the this Bay, mistake? <laughs> the K-lighters are heading straight for the area already identified by the Navy as being likely to shoal rapidly. What happens? What happens? Well, it's exactly as they feared. The K-lighters ran aground on sandbanks or reefs between 50 and 100 yards from the shore. So, uh, Can you imagine sat in this lighter, the 500 of you, and, and, and you're a static tar- target. You're well within rifle range because there's still people at this time up on Lala Barba. Um, you, you're, you're open to shrapnel fire if they, and, and, and the Turks are opening fire. Something's got to be done, Gary. What? And you're going to be Captain Jeffrey Mugans no, of the I'm 11th not. Manchester. Oh, here you are. No, I'm not. Is it me? It's you. Oh, yeah, it is me. I'm glad it's me. So am I. 
The men were pushed and packed back in the stern to take the weight off the bows and so get off the obstruction. But this proved futile. Finally, it was decided for a few men to go over the end <laughs> with a rope attached to the lighter and take this to the shore and that the remainder would get to shore as best they could, hanging onto the rope and pulling themselves along by it. The CO called for tall men, and I, being about five feet eleven, yep. step forward. Yep. Told that, you that, that was is tall. not tall. That that's is tall, almost dwarf-like. I told you that's tall before. Oh dear, oh dear! How tall are you? Five foot ten. Our second in command, Major Sillery, was going over first. He turned to me and said, "I advise you to take off all your equipment, like me." Wow. I did so and jumped in after him. I went clean under and could not touch the bottom. However, I struck out, and in about five yards I found my depth. The CO of the 9th Lancashire Lancashire Fusiliers, Colonel Wellstead, followed, and when we three got to the shore, Major Sillery, the Colonel and I, hung onto the rope and kept it as taut as we could. So they've got got the rope going from the the, the lighter to the shore, and they're holding it so that the men can, can pull themselves along it. Now, back on the lighter, Colonel Bashy Wright, he keeps order and he's marshalling his men, get, trying to get them, he, that's from the 11th Manchester's he's commanding, he's trying to get them down the gangway and into the sea. It's, it's a pretty nerve-wracking business and I'm sure it's you this time. You're going to be Sergeant William Taylor of the 11th Manchester's. The majority of the men were under fire for the first time. It was a nerve-trying moment and they received that kind of shock that stagnates action and they simply lay down on the deck, undecided what to do. But a few words from Lieutenant Hart brought them to their senses, and then all made tracks for the sea. Personally, I groped my way through, my sole thought being to get away from the lighter, being under the impression that they were only firing at the lighter. Now, on the beach, uh, by this time, Captain Geoffrey Mergins, that's me, <laughs> he'd been charged with collecting and sorting out all the companies as they come ashore. And they, they slowly piece themselves out. Actually, some are sent to help up uh, on Nalababa and nearly get involved in a scrap with them. But they, they, this is what he says, uh, and I'm going to be Mergins again. There's a good deal of confusion and shouting. <laughs> Sounds like the army. <laughs> Which, with the pretty hot fire we were under from Lalababa, made reorganisation difficult. At the same time, the old gun at Ghazi Baba started firing, and we saw the shells coming over us and bursting about 200 yards to our right front. The men, I thought, here were very good, lying still and trying to clean their rifles, which were soaked, of course, and nearly all choked with sand. Being unarmed, I picked up a rifle, but the bolt simply stuck fast, and I could not open it. And then I loved the next bit. I, I gave it to a private who had lost his. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lad, have this. Oh, he, probably, he probably unstuck it, though, didn't he, being yeah. a private? Oh, yeah, a more competent More individual. competent, yeah. Now, uh, you're going to be Colonel Bashy Wright of the 11th Manchester. He's in charge. I had previously given my company commanders orders as to the order of march, objective, and also compass bearings. These latter were now of no use as we had been landed two miles south of where we should have been. That's an over-exaggeration. I want to make that clear. We were all fearfully cold as it was a cool night. We were in thin khaki drill and soaked to the skin. The men were wonderfully cheerful and keen. I gave the company commanders uh, a line to march on, more or less guessing the direction. Now, he's, this is a robust, this is an officer who copes with uh, things are thrown in his path and he, he just gets on with it. He's, he's, he is an impressive officer. Do you think he can accurately judge the mood of his men? 
Well, probably not at that moment, no. <laughs> Soaking wet, freezing cold. But they never complain. They would never complain. Would now, they? as they begin to ascend the foothills of uh, Karakol Dar on the western end of the Kirich Tepe Ridge, they begin to encounter some serious opposition. And you're once more going to be Captain uh, uh, Mergens of That's the 11th me. Manchesters. I don't know why you hesitated over it. Because you've spelt it wrong and put Mengens. <laughs> Instead of two or three sentry posts, we ran into several strongly held, well-entrenched pickets. 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 I hope I'm not going too fine in saying that I shall always consider that the order not to load rifles had a very disheartening (laughs) effect. Most rifles, it is true, were rendered useless by immersion in sea sand. Sea and sand. But I know it would have bucked our fellows considerably in the little trench episode if they could have uh, taken a few pot shots at the retreating enemy and brought a few down. We were discovered then and nothing was gained by silence. The whole thing was a beastly nerve-wracking experience in the dark. He means that once shots had been fired, they, yeah. they knew they were there. Yeah. Um, now, so uh, up on the ridge, what's that ridge like? You've done... You, I don't, you, you've been to the boot, which encompasses uh, Kirichtepe. You've also been a little way up to the where was later Ninth yeah, Headquarters. We, yeah. What's the ridge like? What Describe to me Kirichtepe or Karakal Darg. Karakal Darg's at the end of Kirichtepe. What's it like? What's it like, Gary? What's it like? Well, if, if I'm going to relate it to, to the boot, it's exceptionally hard going. You've got narrow, jagged uh, ridges that, that that's covered. And I mean literally covered in prickly scrub and it falls away steeply on both sides it, at times it's 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 actually quite precipitous especially on the northern side and i'm just stopping at the word precipitous i'm impressed by your grasp of the english language it's as if it was your first language <laughs> now the turks well they're, well they're, they're in a series of well some prepared and impromptu positions uh, have they dug trenches up there uh, no, you, you've got sangers have piled up rocks. Why haven't they dug trenches? Why? Why? Because <laughs> of the ground, frankly. It's rock. It's it's rock. So you've got some natural breaks in the rock, and they and they use them, and they use them well. And you've got uh, uh, formations all around the narrow gullies. Now the Manchester's press four. This battalion is really good, uh, and the Turks fall back uh, in stages to the next defensible point they can identify. Fine. Um, now. They're becoming a bit isolated because nobody else is coming with them. The Manchester seem to be on their own. And this is what Colonel Bashi Wright says. We managed to get on a bit further and were finally held up a few hundred yards in advance of a high point in the ridge, which was afterwards known as Jefferson's Post. The officers and men behaved most gallantly and made several desperate efforts to take the next hill without success. The forward slope of the hill was without cover and under a very heavy uh, rifle and machine gun fire. Shrapnel was bursting over us from two guns on our right front and the men were worn out with hard work and heat. They were fainting with thirst as they had given up any water they had in their water bottles to keep the machine gun going. At about noon, my uh, my leading companies were about halfway to the next hill, the benchmark, and could not move. Uh, Machine gun ammunition had run out, my second in command and two company commanders had been killed and a third wounded and we were suffering heavily. I was hit myself and there were no signs of our being reinforced. Anxious as we were to take the benchmark, it was impossible and there was nothing to do but hang on as best we could and hold the ground we had taken. 
Wow. Now, uh, we've, we've talked about, you know, how little water they had. And actually, he's talking about them not being able to, to drink it and using it to call the machine gun. Yeah. And, and we've talked, it's a constant theme. We, when we go there, we've got, well, uh, the boot walk, which is to the left of this, but it, 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 it's a six bottle walk. Uh, and they've got one water bottle and they've had to give it up. They must have been suffering agonies. Now, the Manchesters could do no more. They've, they've done fantastically. I, I, I'm, I'm really impressed by them. But behind them, everybody, the, the three brigades of the 11th Division, they were hours behind schedule. Um, and, and then, worse confusion, because when at about 4.30 in the morning, the forward elements of 10th Division begin to arrive, it all goes wrong. It had been planned that they'd land in A Beach... Uh, that's the one inside the bay, and, and reinforced the 34th Brigade in the push along Kirich Tepe. But the shoals, and it, it's impossible, there's some mines on one of the beaches, so they, did, they decided to land 31st Brigade and half of 30th Brigade of 10th Division on C Beach, that's next to B Beach, along at the other side of uh, Nibranati Point. Oh, no, and that weakens the force, that leaves the Manchesters on their own for ages. And they, they, oh, anyway, bugger it. Let, let's just go. We've got to get, we've got, it's just so much confusion. Um, the, 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 the division, 30th Brigade had already been detached because they were helping with An, the Anzac Corps left hook. So there were only two brigades of 10th Division on this. So what, where does that leave Lieutenant General Sir Brian Mahan? By the way, no, Lieutenant General. Uh, how, what's left of his brigade, of his division? Uh, yes, <laughs> it's a brigade, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's split into three, isn't it? And it's and it's it's going to have devastating effect on command and control. All of the changes in the plan cause delays, and time's just ticking away. What does time wait for? Oh, no man! Whoa! Did you invent that? For anyway, it, it takes several hours before the Irish battalions of Tenth Division can get themselves organised and get themselves up to reinforce the Manchester's. It's too late. What about the rest of Thirty uh, Fourth Brigade? That's the ones who'd landed uh, with the Manchester's. Well, the Ninth Lancashire Fusiliers uh, eventually managed to get ashore. Funnily enough, the Northumberland Fusiliers uh, actually—they were stuck most of the day, about six hundred yards offshore. They never get ashore. Now but they the, send out patrols ahead of them, didn't they? And the Lancashire's, they, yeah. What do they find, Pete? They find the Salt Lake, and feeling out to their lesson flakes, they determine their position. They're trying to find out where their salt dumps are, but it's all chaotic. And when when dawn breaks, you are dead right, three o'clock. What a good judge of time you are. I'm impressed. I'll get my coat. Uh, (laughs) Now, um, so they're confused, and by this time, uh, Colonel Harry Welster's been lightly wounded, and Major Cyril Ibbotson, who's sort of there, he's... He, he, he's, uh, he's interfered with by... Uh, who's he interfered with? Well, by? he's briefed rather than interfered with in, in a rather brusque manner by Major uh, Lionel Ashburner, who's the senior staff officer of the 34th Brigade. And you're going to be Major Cyril Ibbotston of the 9th Lancashire Fusiliers. What does he say, Pete? Well, he doesn't say it. This is what uh, well uh, Ashburner says to him. Look, just see that hill over there on the left? <laughs> that is the hill we want. Hill 10, if you could take all the men you've got and carry that hill between those two trees on the horizon, we shall be all right. Otherwise, we shall probably be driven into the sea. 
And uh, and then it, this is what Ebertson says. We started in three lines in extended order. The men going forward splendidly, led by their platoon commanders. In the, in the most superb manner imaginable, with shells and bullets coming thicker and thicker. Every man being eager to get the objective. There was a check just before we got to the foot of the hill. Then, in one mad rush, we carried the hill at the point of the bayonet. So they've got Hill 10, have they? Have they, have they, have they got Hill 10? Well, actually, no, it's not Hill 10. Hill 10 seems very difficult to spot. The low hill was just a sand hill occupied by a small Turkish detachment, and the real Hill 10 was about 400 yards further north. And we'll put a map up, Pete, and we still won't actually know where well, it is. Well, Hill Ten's a joke because it is only 10 metres or feet high. It's very difficult. A, a, a sand hill would be rough. Uh, you could see why they call All across Suvla, there's similar mistakes, similar confusion. Um, but there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's an Australian perspective that, that they're not, or New Zealand, that they're not fighting. Well, they are fighting and it's an invisible enemy. And if you remember that uh, at, at, uh, at Anzac, just one company held off uh, the, the Anzac Corps. Uh, at, uh, at Hellas, just one battalion holds off the, the, uh, the landings there. Uh, here, there are three battalions holding off very inexperienced troops. It's it's the same story again. And and I'm going to be... Who am I going to be? You're going to be Private G.A. Hantford of the 8th Duke of Wellington's Regiment. In their retirement, the Turks had artfully concealed a whole army of snipers in a thousand and one different places. What? You think that's accurate? It was a thousand. <laughs> More like one. <laughs> what a, an effect these pests had on our progress is best described in the casualties which were mostly the victims of some fiendish snipers already we had lost the majority of our commissioned officers to say nothing of a good few NCOs and men parties would go out voluntary in search of these fiends but all to no good but generally they would return with the majority of them missing victims to the snipers, so they wouldn't return, is what he's saying. And this is the point. Snipers, there would be a few of them. There, there would be, and, and the Turks are and using... And why do they aim at officers? Because they're in charge. Who's in charge when the officers are dead? The NCOs. There is an argument they should go for the NCOs first, actually. <laughs> but, you know, the, the Turks are using the ground well. They're using it to their advantage. Now, it's not just snipers. The, the Turkish artillery, and we've seen two of the guns that are there. The, you know those two old guns back uh, uh, by the uh, Anafata, little Anafata, not big Anafata, Gary? Um, and you're going to be a bombardier George Dale of the 59th Brigade RFA. As we wheel right from the beach, a shell thuds into the hillside above, and the drivers whip up their horses. Away they go, leaving Herbert and I alone, orphans of the storm. We grab hands and break into a trot. Faster, faster, I seem to hear my guardian angel say, as another shell lands short. Now we're in top gear with rifle, bandolier with 50 rounds, haversacks askew, water bottles and mess tins clanking, stumbling like stampeding cattle over salt bushes, puffing hard and muck sweat streaming. No, no, it wasn't funny, chums. Bang! Scream! Crack! Down now on our bellies, while pellets thud into the ground. I'm hitting the head. No, it's the darn rifle. Damn near that one. You're right, George. Ye- yes, are you Hubert? 
up again and scuttle on. It's our first Gallipoli gallop. Bane's <laughs> oh. disease strikes again. <laughs> oh, if mother could see me now. Uh, we've got it all to ourselves on that unforgettable half mile. Mean to say you were afraid, somebody might say. Very much so, chum. Hair standing up straight, eyes protruding like the white balls on chapel hat pigs. Show me the hero who stayed calm under his first shellfire and I'll show you a liar. I like that quote. There's a, there's a lot of atmosphere in, in Dells. Uh, it, that's from the War Museum uh, it's a document there. Now, they're often left isolated, just in scrapes in the ground. There's nothing else. It's quite flat and open, the plane, in, in some places. Uh, even on Kirich Depot, you've just got to find what cover you can. And and I'm going to be... Who am I going to be? Tell You're me. You're going to be Second Lieutenant Ivone Kirkpatrick of the 1st 5th Inniskilling Fusiliers. There was no one in front of us, but the enemy of whose whereabouts or number we had no knowledge, and we must try to dig in, as the staff were of the opinion that we should be shelled in the morning. That night was the most, was one of the most arduous and uncomfortable I have ever spent. The soil was hard and rocky. Our, our only digging implements were trenching, entrenching tools. We dug all night and when dawn broke had little to show for our labours. Most of the men had succeeded in digging shallow graves, oh dear, with a parapet of loose earth and flints. But some who had struck rocks had not even that. He's over the left, he is over up towards uh, Kirich Depe. Now, unsurprisingly, they're ravaged by a raging thirst. Well, this is what we were talking about. It must have been murder. Can you imagine? What what, what else might just put the bloody top hat on it? Well, it, it's exacerbated by their physical efforts and, uh, and the leaching effect of the cordites. Smoke. Cordites is apparently, I don't know from personal experience, but it's it's very thirst-making. Yeah, and, and that goes on for hour after hour. They're pinned down, unable to move. They're sweating in the sweltering sun with dust caked on their faces and their cracked dry lips are black with blood. Oh, you painted pictures. So now, nice. controlling the men, it's almost impossible once they're out of earshot as the communications available in 1915 just can't cope with it. Well, what about wireless? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wireless sets were, were far too heavy and unwieldy to be portable and it's extremely difficult to run out and maintain telephone wires while runners were, were, were being sniped mercifully, mercilessly. So if, so if you've got a runner, they, they, they'll tend to be shot as they try and get back. Now, so that's a, that is a disadvantage in t- command and control. I, I accept that, Gary, but, but I think that even with that severe handicap, they're just useless as senior officers. The brigadiers, the divisional commanders, Hammersley and uh, and 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 Stopford. Um, why do you th- what go through it with me? What 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 is useless about them? Well, a number of them were paralysed by fear of failure, and they're unwilling to take a chance. And and that's the default setting. Do nothing. Uh, yeah, do nothing. Absolutely. Um, so attacks are being ordered and cancelled. Troops are being marched backwards and forwards to no constructive end. This is the grand old Duke of York syndrome. The sheer scale of the Suga operations and the relatively large distances involved tend to exaggerate the communication So it's worse than somewhere where you can walk across it. It's big. It's it's a big area, isn't it? Um, The other thing, what's a a weakness of uh, medium command? Well, they, they constantly seek to defer to the higher authority. Oh, well, that's all right. Is it, what about? Who's the higher authority? Yeah, let's have a think about this. So in this case, the higher authorities were Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Stopford, who's hampered by an injured knee. He'd fallen and hurt his knee. 
and he's hopelessly out of touch aboard the yacht Jonquil. Now, I understand him being on the Jonquil because it's a, he's got a communications hub there, but he, he is out of touch. But he's not really in charge, is he? No, ultimate authority is Hamilton, isn't it? And uh, he's got his eyes firmly fixed on the Anzac breakout. Because that's the main operation. Uh, and uh, <laughs> 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 Yeah, and at this stage, he's paying little attention to Subaru. This sounds like a, just a command vacuum. There, there is no one taking command and control of the situation. Uh, what about uh, the, the more junior? The, 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 remember, you can't always just blame the. We give plenty of praise to the staff, but some, but but the, 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 sometimes the staff aren't doing well. Why might the staff not be doing so well? Well, it, it, it's. It, <laughs> The headquarters is hastily cobbled together and it's staffed by officers with, with little relevant experience. And it's not only the generals who don't know what they're doing. Almost no one knew what they were doing. And this is the, the whole time. I mean, even on the British Army as a whole, there's a problem with staff officers. Uh, a lot of the trained past staff goal at college in 19, before 1914 had gone to their units and been killed in 1914. So there's a real problem with the lack of experienced, competent staff officers who are young enough to withstand the the pressure and the the conditions. So all the long boiling afternoon of the 7th, who's controlling Chocolate Hill? Uh, That was going to be captured before dawn, then it was going to be captured just after dawn. Chocolate Hill, the Green Hill, the W Hills, who's controlling them? Have we got them? Have we got them? No, they all remain firmly in Turkish hands, and it's it's not until the light was beginning to fail that elements. So that's late. That that's late. Now using your expertise on August, that would be nine o'clock, half eight. Yeah, probably about half eight, I would have thought. And uh, it's not until then that uh, <laughs> the 10th the Division sort of join in, and it's just after seven o'clock, Pete, I think. Yeah, they're, 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 again, that's right. Sorry, I was just being childish there. And yes. it's only after that that the, the Chocolate and Green Hills are captured. Uh, what about uh, W Hills? Is that captured? Or Scimitar Hills? Is that captured? No. 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 And that's the point. We have got the foothills of the foothills. So after all of this, have we, have we, we have we got the heights at the back? The Tekitepe? Have we got Kirichepe? Yes or no, Gary? Answer the question. No. Oh. Now, Limon von Saunders, he, he reacts really quickly once he was sure that Belair would not be the focus of the He of always attack. worries about Belair. That's a thing we had on the 25th of he April. He does, yeah. But he dispatches the 7th and 12th Division to Suvla at 07.20 on the 7th of August. That's early, yeah. Yeah, so on arrival somewhere east of uh, Tekitepe, at about 2200 on the 7th of August, their commander asked for time for his exhausted men before launching a counter-attack. And guess what happened? Uh, he's sacked. He's abruptly replaced by Mustafa Kamal, which uh, has no real discernible impact. It doesn't, cause, cause because <laughs> the troops are indeed exhausted. And, and they wouldn't actually launch a counter-attack until the, 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 ninth, the very early morning of the 9th of August. But I feel somewhat sorry for that commander who's sacked. Uh, but that treatment of people not pushing people forward is is something British could have done with more of, uh, well, some of. Yeah, and it's only that fatigue that gives the British another day to uh, to have any sort of chance of success. Now we're not going on to tell the further story, we're, because because uh, the, the, we'll deal with that in other podcasts at some later time. But we're talking about the landings. They ha- we have discussed it. They had not achieved their objectives. Uh, was it? I'm. I'm uh, was it really a feasible occupation? I mean, the, the Anzac breakout, we've decided, was completely hopeless from start to finish, really. And, and Well, it was unnecessary 
unnecessarily complex as often well you mean marching around the the north of why why not across it well they they and then all the changes and everything it became more complex and and things were diluted and let's not forget the vigorous turkish reaction we should never forget that because in the end it's their vigorous and dynamic opposition that that defeats us and and that it's not just british mistakes is it no and and you know arguably the british underestimated that and and surprisingly given what had happened at the the the, the landings in april so uh, you've also got the inexperienced nature of the british troops and any oh, the well, lack uh, of any push any displayed push by at the all. generals they've got they've got no drive now we just briefly go through. It was only chance, uh, well, quick reorganisation the morning of the 8th August and they, they try and uh, they try and take the foothills and uh, they push along Kirich Tepe, take Simit Hills, the W Hills, Taki Tepe Ridge. Uh, if they'd done that, they could have done that. They could have, they could have done it on the 8th. But were they ready for it? They, were they ready? No. Because what happens is Hammersley and his brigadiers, Hammersley commanding 11th Division, and his brigadiers, they're utterly broken men. They just allow the troops to rest and reorganise on the on the 8th. They don't push forward for the ridges. To summarise, so in the end, and then the the campaign just goes on. It's a, it's, it's a nightmare and uh, it's just assaults and defeats all the time. And we'll, we'll come back to it. I think, in summary, the Ninth Corps is thrown into battle long before they're ready with incompetent commanders, their ludicrously optimistic plans, which uh, which presume token Turkish resistance, and the Turkish resistance is brilliant. Um, I, I, what do you think of Major Wilmer? I think he's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it was a very simple plan, but, but his original defensive positions had been well chosen. His men were well briefed, and they fought hard, Pete. They did fight. That they were better. They were better troops uh, because they'd been trained better. They had more experience. Yeah, and they'd withdraw at the last moment to the next defensible position. They didn't stand and die. You know, credits often uh, credit has to be given to the, the superior quality of the Turkish opposition, whose efforts are often unsung. And we've said it before. Good soldiers in defence. Now, one thing that annoys me is uh, is the self-serving uh, sort of analysis of Hamilton and his senior staff officers. Now, you're going to be one of his senior staff officers, uh, Major Guy Dorney, at the headquarters of the MEF, which I find easier to say. Uh, well, well, and this is enough to make you want to punch him in the face. Our plans all succeeded and worked out beyond expectations satisfactorily. But the task set to the new army divisions was, as it turned out, rather beyond their powers, owing to the fact that their officers were not sufficiently trained. It is no one's fault, but officers can't be made good company leaders, even after nearly a year. The result was that, though the new army divisions were not opposed by any great force, and though they had practically no artillery against them, they could not get on quickly enough and their advance hung fire. Hmm, have you heard of that sort of excuse-making in management before? Hmm. Hmm, blaming other people. Uh, surely uh, surely the, uh, the the quality of the materials you're sending into battle is part of making a plan. Exactly, and, and he's got a vested interest in defending the integrity of that plan, hasn't he? Now, what does uh, Hamilton... Now, Hamilton, is he's so clever, and yet so stupid at times. His analysis... Uh, is cutting. It's it's got some truth in it, 
but on the other hand, who's responsible for this situation? He is. Anyway, what does Hamilton say? It's a very witty epigram. Just as no man putteth new wine into old bottles, so the combination between new troops and old generals seems to be proving unsuitable. You know, so to to his staff, to him, he's got nothing nothing to say sorry about. Oh, I'm not sorry that. Uh, but do you know what? I don't. I think even the most well led and elite battalions would have had trouble carrying out the operational orders that that, that those staff officers in Hamilton issue. Given the robust opposition of Major Wilmer and his Turks uh, at Suvla, uh, whose plan was it? In the end, whose plan is it? Who's always responsible? Whose plan is it? It's Hamilton's. So he's responsible. But let's face it, he had plenty of scapegoats to screen his ultimate responsibility. And uh, later there was a, a, a cull of Ninth Corps senior officers. Nearly all of them. Uh, but he remained. He remains for another two or three months. Well, that, that the landings at Suvla, which we've covered, an absolute disaster. If you want to read more, I recommend my own book, Gallipoli, or the book I wrote with Nigel Steele, Defeat at Gallipoli. Both of them... Uh, in my view, lovely. You've read them both, haven't you, Gary? I've read them both. And you've learnt what? Not necessarily at the same time. <laughs> well, uh, so there we go. The landings at Suvla, an utter disaster. And we'll, we'll, I look forward to being able to go and revisit the scene. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?